1: Hi Chris, this is Albert, checking in from Prague's Václav Havel International Airport, going back to LA. Just wanted to say thank you for accompanying me on my travels, listening to your episode with Dr. Wendy, and also looking forward to your new book coming out very soon. Anyway, thanks, you make
2: us very happy, or in Czech, Jacques de latinam, rados. Goodbye. Hey there folks. This is David. Most people know me as Wobby though. I'm from Northampton, Massachusetts and I'm currently on a road trip exploring the western part of the state for the first time. Just outside Telluride, Colorado, camping out, drinking a beer, listening to some Grateful Dead, watching the sunset. Taking it all in. Well, cheers everybody. Hey, Chris, this is Michael from Stoneboro, Pennsylvania. i uh, currently driving a delivery truck through West Virginia and Virginia, delivering organic food to sustainable communities, eco-villages, Quakers, Hare Krishnas, and Doomsday Preppers. I uh, just wanted to thank you for your podcast, uh, your knowledge and insight and comedy, Um, brings joy to my long truck driving days Uh, probably listen to you and Joe and Duncan every single week so thank you Um, next week I'm getting married to the love of my life my twin flame and we're going to enjoy our cisgender heterosexual monogamous relationship so no big deal (laughs) All right, anyway, peace out. Thank you, and hope all the listeners are having a great day too Ciao.
1: yeah, I hope that's his gender marriage is going well. I think these came in in September October, so they're uh yeah, Albert's back from Prague, and uh deadhead's no longer sitting just outside Tellado drinking beer, and uh trucker's married so Hope everybody's doing great wherever you are. Thanks for sending those in. If you want to send one in, you can send it to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. My guest today is Ben Stewart, Ben Joseph Stewart. He's a filmmaker, screenwriter, musician, a vet. Vet not as an animal doctor, but as in a guy who used to be in the military. I think he was actually in the military while he was in a successful band playing festivals and I think he talks about that, if I remember correctly. It's been a few weeks since I recorded this one. Um, Anyway, Ben is a very interesting dude. Came up here to Topanga. We had a great chat. And I hope you enjoy it, as always. What's been happening? I keep forgetting to mention that there's a Discord server for listeners of Tangentially Speaking. And the reason I forget that is that I don't really know what a Discord server is. So the guy who runs it writes to me every once in a while, and he says, hey, it's really great when you mention it on the show because a bunch of people come, and we're having all these interesting conversations, and I'm like, cool, I'll try to remember to mention it, and I write a Post-it note, and I stick it on the wall, and then I, I guess I look at it, and I don't see it because I don't know what it means. But if you know what a Discord server is, and you want to log on if that's what one does to a discord server you should do that it's discord.me forward slash tangentially speaking i'm guessing this is one of these uh things that uh generationally distinguishes us you know like i've noticed that people under around the age of 35 or so they have that thing where they grip their phones and they use both thumbs and they go and they like they peck away at it with their thumbs, whereas people like me hold the phone in the left hand and with their right hand they sort of dick, 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 dick like that with the right hand. So uh maybe that's maybe a discord server is that kind of thing. Anyway, it's there. Go check it out discord Me, forward slash, tangentially speaking. Uh, What else can I tell you? I am moving forward with this idea of approaching selected companies uh, with the possibility of sponsoring the podcast. I have partnered up with a friend of mine who does brand management and marketing and all that kind of stuff, and she's agreed to take this on at a significant discount rate just because she is friendly and generous and she's gonna see if uh if she can connect me with the right people it's it's a hard gig because i'm not saying like you know go find anyone who will sponsor the podcast and here are the numbers and make it work i'm saying no there are these 15 companies that i'm willing to talk to which you know makes the job a lot harder obviously but anyway we'll see what happens with that uh you know part of one one factor and all this that i haven't mentioned is and the thing that probably triggered a lot of thinking around this is that patreon is doing things that are kind of strange they so far they've censored they've just pulled down the pages of some right-wing people and i don't even know who the people are and i haven't listened to what they've said so i can't comment in much detail as to who's right and who's wrong but it is troubling that uh there doesn't really seem to be as far as i understand it uh, clear guidelines that patreon uses to decide who has broken the vow of decency or whatever it is that we've agreed to with patreon and so if that's your only source of funding and you say something that they don't like and they can pull it down that puts you in a very vulnerable position and uh, I guess Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris uh, and some other people uh, have abandoned patreon because of that <clears throat> because of the, the seemingly arbitrary way that they yank people down from their site. And, you know, I guess they have the right to do that. There's, It's not a public utility. It's a private company, and they have a right to say, you know, your whatever you're doing is offensive to us, so fuck off. But then I think for the creators, they have to also take that into consideration and think about... um to what extent they want to be worried about possibly getting completely wiped out because they say something that someone finds to be offensive. I don't know if I qualify. I certainly say some things that are offensive sometimes, sometimes on purpose, uh, often by accident. But um, so far I haven't had any serious problems Uh, with any sort of uh, institutions in that regard. But it could happen at any time. and So it's a weird thing. Like one of the reasons I didn't do advertising was I didn't want any companies looking over my shoulder and I didn't want to have to think like, oh, be careful, don't talk about that or this because that might piss off some company. But then the alternative is something like Patreon and then you have to worry about pissing off Patreon, I guess. So it seems like diversifying is the way to go. So that's another uh, reason that I'm looking into alternative ways of monetizing this this strange little thing we have going here. Uh, what else? Uh, I you know, I haven't done advertising for years, but I do talk about things that work and that I like. And uh, one of them I did recently is with a company called Biome. Um, they, Uh, basically uh, they do um, an analysis of your microbiome Uh, and they uh, sort of you send them a shit sample and they test it and they give you a very um, comprehensive review of what kind of bugs are living in your gut full transparency with you as always I agreed uh, to discuss my experience with the company in exchange for two free uh, tests they did me and Casilda. Casilda, actually, the, the main reason I wanted to do it was that Casilda's has had some health issues in recent years, and I thought it would be interesting for her to be able to see this. Um, but her results came back pretty good. Mine were fucked up. So... That was interesting. it seemed to show that I have um an unusually high level of one kind of bacteria and fungus and very low levels of other ones and so that suggests some sort of chronic inflammation, which is strange because I don't think I have any chronic inflammation but anyway it was uh it was quite interesting. it was useful I guess um. And the woman that I talked to, who her name is Aubrey, I think, uh, from the company who goes over the results with you, was extremely knowledgeable. She was really smart. Uh, they set up like an hour-long phone conversation to talk about the results and, and talk you through it. She was great. And, you know, the the advice was uh, more physical activity, eat more vegetables, get more fiber, more fruit, uh, you know, sleep more. (laughs) It's all kind of like the same advice that everybody gives everybody, you know, like live better, eat better, move more and sleep more. And yeah, Uh, so I'm trying, I'm trying those things. Uh, I I think I'm pretty low stress as it is, but who knows? Maybe, I don't know, maybe not everyone who feels stress knows that they're stressed. I used to argue with a friend of mine about that. He's a cardiologist. He used to do these heart operations every day, and we talked about stress. And he said, no, I don't feel stress. I was like, come on, dude, you're like cutting open people's bodies. He said, yeah, I know, but I've done that a thousand times. I'm good at it. I, I don't feel stress about that. I don't know. Like I thought my my position was you must be feeling stressed, you just don't know you are. Because there's no way to cut into another human being's body without feeling stress. His argument or his position was no, you can get used to anything and no longer feel stressed because you're accustomed to it and you feel comfortable in that situation because you're so familiar with it. And honestly. I don't know if his position or my position made more sense. Maybe he was stressed and didn't recognize it. I, th- I think you'd have to do physiological tests, see what his cortisol levels were and heart rate and blood pressure and all that when he got into that position. Uh, anyway, the, the company, if you'd like to do your own, is BiomeHealth.com. health.com. Uh, I forget what they cost, like 120 bucks, I think, for the basic test. I don't know. If you do it, tell them you heard about it from me, and that'll make them happy. You know, it was before the sponsorship, so I didn't ask them for money. We didn't do it that way. I just thought, yeah, I'll do it. I'll mention it. So there it is. It's mentioned. Um, A friend of mine is looking. He wants to buy a Patagonia sleeping bag. Uh, like a high-end Patagonia sleeping bag. Actually, it's uh, Justin, uh, number 99 on this podcast. He's a hunter, and he wants to get, and I don't want to hit up Kyle, because I'm always hitting up Kyle for his Patagonia discount, and he just has a, there's a limit to how much he can do. So I mentioned this one time on the podcast, and some people who worked at Patagonia sent me their employee discount code. If you're one of those people and you have another one, Hit me up and I'll, uh, I'll get use it to get my buddy his sleeping bag. All right. I think that's it. What else did I have to say? That's it for housekeeping stuff. I just watched the Bruce Springsteen one-man Broadway special on Netflix. Um, if you're into Springsteen at all, it's very, very good. Very interesting. I... Uh, you know, it's a funny it was it's a very funny thing cuz I grew up in the northeast in the 70s and 80s when Bruce Springsteen was really big. I remember my freshman year in college I somehow ended up with two tickets to a Bruce Springsteen show in I was in upstate New York, and I think the show was probably in New York City or Philadelphia or someplace. It was a drive. And I got the tickets because I knew somebody who knew somebody. I don't remember. But I ended up with these tickets, right? And I was like, eh, yeah, Bruce Springsteen's all right. But I, I, I wasn't super into him. And like once word got out that I had these tickets, I had a line out my dorm room door of people trying to get those tickets from me. And he was so popular. And I always felt like some of the music's good, but it was so in character. It was so working man down at the factory and the, you know, the engines roaring out at the edge of town. And it was just so like, I'm <coughs> sorry, consistently... Bruce, um, especially in those days, the early stuff—that real sort of grand, almost operatic, blue-collar celebration of the downtrodden working man. Not that I'm against that. I mean, I'm—I certainly resonate with that and sympathize with, you know, the victims of progress and fucking, you know, factory robots and globalization and all the rest of it. I hear it. I hear that message. But something about it just felt insincere to me. It felt inauthentic, which I know is ironic because Bruce is all about authenticity and and his fans are all like, he's so fucking authentic and he plays these three and a half hour shows and I finally did see him in Barcelona uh, maybe five years ago um but yeah that it just never quite clicked for me uh and then watching this netflix thing was really interesting because he tells the story of his life and at the very beginning he says i have never seen the inside of a factory when i wrote You know, Tramps Like Us, Baby, We Were Born to Run, all about getting in your Chevy and all this. I didn't have a driver's license. This working man blues thing was a voice, a persona that he created based upon who he thought his father was and what he thought his father's experience of life was. It was his way to try to connect to his dad, who was a bit of an asshole, apparently, and and emotionally totally unavailable to young Bruce. So Bruce invented this character called Bruce Springsteen, the boss, that he played on stage. But it wasn't him. It wasn't his experience. It was totally made up right at least that aspect now as he got older and his own experiences started to find expression in his music I actually came to appreciate his music much more and I didn't understand why it just felt more authentic to me he has a record called Tunnel of Love which he wrote um, around the time that his marriage was breaking up and some of the songs on that record are just heartbreakingly beautiful. And um that's that's the record and, and The River and some other stuff later on where it, to me, feels like, okay, this guy's talking to me. The earlier stuff just felt like he was posing. And it was interesting watching this special because it turned out I was right. Mm, with no knowledge whatsoever, I just, my feeling was right. And... The special is very much about him very sincerely explaining to you, the audience, how he pulled off this trick of getting you all to think that he was this guy, Bruce, when really he was someone else. And how playing that trick on audiences for the last... 30 or 40 years has taken a toll on him psychologically. He didn't get into it a lot in the special, but there's a really um good interview that he did with Terry Gross on Fresh Air a year or two ago around the time that his autobiography came out um where he talks a lot about like severe depression that he had been uh, experiencing. And I remember Terry said to him, you know, when you were going through this depression, did it ever occur to you when you were, you know, playing in front of 70,000 people that many of those people would have traded their lives for yours in a second, that they wanted to be you? And he said, "Uh, yeah, I understand that because I wanted to be that guy on stage, too. But I wasn't, and I'm not. So it's a very, anyway. the The point I'm getting at is that that there's a very there's a conundrum around artistry and authenticity, right? Somebody said art is the lie that tells the deepest truth, and so. Like, Bruce Springsteen, when you're watching that, if you do, think about think about the extent to which he knows he's on camera. The extent to which he's aware all the time that he's on stage. And does that make what he's saying false in some way? Or does it make it even deeper because... He's integrated that knowledge into who he is. There's a moment where he's talking about his father and very subtly tears run down his face. And he just kind of brushes them away in, a, in an offhand kind of way. And if you're not looking for it, you might not even notice it. But I noticed it and I was thinking like, okay, he did this show every day for a month or maybe it was five nights a week for a month. They filmed it the last night, and then they, or maybe they cut it from different shows. Maybe they cut it from different shows. But they filmed it. They edited it. I'm sure he had a a hand in the editing process. I'm sure he had total creative control as to what showed up on Netflix. So in any case, either if they shot it all the last night, which it seemed like they did, but maybe it was cut from different nights. In any case, did he choose to have those tears run down his face that night because he knew the cameras were on? Or if it was an editing process, did he say, "Mm, yeah, get that night when the tears ran down my face, but not the other night when there were too many tears and not the night when there were no tears? And if so, if there was that level of awareness and conscious intent what does that say about authenticity can authenticity be faked and if authenticity is faked very very well is it still inauthentic i mean i was talking to a woman about faked orgasms one time and she said i said something like i don't understand why you would fake an orgasm it just seems so it seems so uh insincere and i understand maybe you're fucking some guy that you don't really want to be fucking and you just and his his ego's all tied up and whether you come or not so you just want to like oh i came great now go to bed go home whatever get the fuck out of here I understand that. Uh, there's like a practical reason to do it. But if you're with someone you trust, you're with someone you feel good with and you can talk openly with, then why would you do it? And what she said was really interesting. She said, sometimes it feels like it's going to take me a long time to come. But if I fake it, it happens. <laughs> I said, well, wait wait, you're faking it because you don't think it's going to happen, but in the process of faking it, that can trigger an actual orgasm. She said, yeah, sometimes. I said, well, have you ever had it happen where at the end you weren't sure if it was real or you were just faking it? And she said all the time. (laughs) So she didn't even know if she was faking her own orgasm. And watching Bruce, I thought about that conversation because it was like this dude is being so sincere. He's telling us about how he's kind of his career is built on insincerity, but he's being so sincere about it that it makes me think that he's really such a sincere guy that even that insincerity was actually really sincere. And when the guy's on stage playing for three and a half hours, pretending to be Bruce, the boss. He's into it. He's so into it that it kind of becomes real, right? I don't know. All right, that's my thought for the day. That's all I, that's all I got. And it's I know it's a sort of a raw, undeveloped thought, but it's uh, it's what's perplexing me at the moment all right I've talked for over 20 minutes that's enough for me I hope you enjoy this episode with Ben Stewart his uh yeah he he gives his his email address at the end so if you want to talk to him you can just send him an email he's got a website uh but it's not complete yet uh I think it's Ben Joseph Stewart at something I don't know what it is actually but he says it at the end uh, and I checked it uh, before I put this up and contacted him. I was like, dude, it's not done yet. Should, your website, should I post this anyway? He said, yeah, go ahead and post it. So Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm going to play you out with a tune called In Exile. And it's by a Scottish band called Kali, uh, I think it is. Kali. It's C-A-P-E-R-C-A-I-L-L-I-E which is like a Scottish wood grouse, I think. Because when I Googled it, I got lots of Scottish wood grouse photos until I found their website, which is uh, Um Yeah, they're a Scottish band that plays kind of funky world music. And I don't know where the hell I got this song, but it's called In Exile. And I dig it. And I hope you do. Catch you next time.
3: Chivo le elevarí y yo.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in my living room in Topanga with Ben Stewart, who just drove up the driveway and pissed in the woods. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's how he announced his arrival. Uh, Sorry, um, who put us in touch? Uh, It was Pete Evans. Pete Evans, who I've never met. And he's an Australian chef. Yeah, right? he's, he's
4: like the Gordon Ramsay of Australia, but but conscious. He doesn't swear at people all the time. He's just... Right. Uh, he's not petulant. No, and he has this Netflix doco, The Magic Pill. Right. Uh, and that's how I came to know him. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, I guess I did his podcast. I he, think he reached out to me and I watched The Magic Pill and I was really impressed by
4: it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Recipes for Life
1: is right. his podcast. Oh, uh, okay. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. And how do you know him?
4: He, um, so I just earlier this year finished a 14-part series uh, on uh, psychedelics and shamanism. Right. And so he saw that. He liked how I handled the subject matter. And he reached out wanting to do a film um, tentatively titled Awaken uh, that focuses on plant medicines. But it's not all about it. It's about like uh, what are the modalities and the tools we have and have always been here on this planet for us to awaken to our nature, mm. um, to what's going on on the planet, how do we fit into that context, all that. So, he, he pitched an idea for me to produce a new Daco with him, and um, it just kind of took off from there. So, I'd never met the guy other oh, than really? just on the phone. Oh, okay, yeah, but he's been uh, he's been hard at work putting me in touch with a ton of people, one of them is yourself. Um, so right now, I'm on a cross-country road trip, meeting up with a lot of people who have expressed interest in being part of the film. Uh, Nako, from Nako and Medicine for the People, if you ever heard him. right, right, yeah. Yeah, heading up to Portland to um, uh, spend a few days with him, and then we're all going out to the Portland Psychedelic Society Conference oh boy! on the 28th, and I'm sharing a few tunes nice. there. So yeah. you're a musician as well. Yeah, started as a musician. Huh. Um, the, really, the biggest reason why I got into film is because I love making soundtrack. It was just another cool reason to make music. Huh. So I got into film, but uh, music wasn't uh, paying the bills, and right. the film was. So right. the film started taking off. Eventually, Gaia, which used to be guy uh, now they're just a yoga product line, but they um, Gaia split off and they're like the conscious Netflix. So I worked with them for the past year and a half, made Psychedelica, worked on a um, another show about human potential, and uh, just recently left there so I could do more independent travel around with my family. I got a um, wife, she's Dutch, we have a three-year-old daughter and twin boys on the way. Wow. Yeah. All right. So it's
2: full on.
1: Good for you, marrying a Dutch woman. You know, that was, I, I thought about that a lot. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Because I have good friends who are Dutch, and I lived in Spain for years. And, like, one of my best friends is uh, is Dutch. And so I spent a lot of time in Holland, and I, I'm so impressed by their culture. And, and the women are so strong and, like, unapologetic and just fucking full-on beautiful women. I I love... I love hanging out in Holland. Yeah. And, and I often thought when I was there, like, yeah, you know, this is when I was in my early 20s, mid-20s. And I thought, you know, if I married a Dutch woman, that would work out. I'd like that. Yeah. Because also to have a connection to the culture, plan B, be able to go live there when shit gets weird here. Which yeah. It's getting, it's getting weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I really admire Dutch culture. Uh, I had a Dutch guy on the podcast recently, and we talked about that. When I hear a Dutch accent, I just like sort of feel really friendly immediately.
4: Yeah, yeah. The one thing I really liked about them... So, I traveled all around Holland, except to Friesland, which is like the very Mm. north of it. Um, But the one thing that I loved most about it was everyone is very educated. Yeah. Um, And they all speak very good English. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I mean, every one of them, you can talk to them about history. You can talk Mm. to them about any subject. They're open uh, the very entrepreneurial and yeah and tallest people in the world you know so I had to find the uh, the shortest girl I could be, me being 5'8 and all you know really? <laughs> yeah, but uh, nice. I did I did one talk I was on a um, a European tour a speaking tour and mm. it was in the course of the tour i got offered hey do you want to come to amsterdam and do do one talk
1: so, so this is on consciousness or what were you talking yeah,
4: about yeah yeah i was i was chatting mainly on um on consciousness and also like plant intelligence mm. and also our relationship with the plant kingdom um and just some, some theories and just going off about you know ayahuasca and some plant medicines and it uh it turned out that my uh my wife now um this was the first time we met she Uh, she was on, she did ayahuasca that morning and I was talking about it in that talk that evening. So that was the conversation starter for us. And then I decided like, shit, I got to get back to UK in a couple days, but I canceled uh, one talk. I didn't want to do the talk from the beginning anyway, but I canceled it and said, Hey, I got five more days in Amsterdam and we hung around, had the most terrible first date ever. And uh, it just blossomed from there.
1: <laughs> How, what made it terrible?
4: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know what? She would not mind if I shared this story. So um, <laughs> so basically, um, we met. We, we really instantly had an attraction. We hung out a few times, went to a few potlucks together. And then eventually, the, it was my last night there, and she was like, you know what? I'm going to kidnap you tonight. I'm taking you to the Conscious Hotel in Amsterdam. Um, we're gonna go out with some of my friends. So we did mushrooms in the park. We s- smoked the joint of uh, her one friend. And she ended up having a few beers. And in the red light district, um, my first few documentaries were conspiracy oriented. Well, my first documentary was conspiracy oriented. And uh, these were all people that knew my film. So they were just pointing out all the cameras and saying, you know, you need to be really careful around here, dude. You could be like set up for. And they were just like giving me shit. But. all of a sudden, uh, Barbara, my wife, she um, she leans into me and says, I am so high right now. And she just starts giggling and I, I grab her and then she starts like leaning into me. I thought this was like a little play for attention. And then she keeps dropping to the ground. And I'm like, uh, are you okay? And her eyes were rolled back in her head. So I had to lay her on the ground. We kind of like, you know, tapped her on the face a little bit and she snapped too. And was like, what's going on? We're like, you're fainting. And she was like no and we're like well then explain how you (laughs) how you got on the floor and you don't remember it you know and this happened three more times she kept passing out and uh every time she'd come back too she was just like i'm still kidnapping you i'm like imagine that you know a kidnapper that can't stay conscious for very long So I was like, okay, but... Uh, and she was like, let's just ride our bikes back to the hotel. I'm like, you are not going to ride your bike yeah. as you're passing out. Like, you know, you're a grown woman. I'm not going to physically stop you, but you really want to face plant doing 15, 20 miles an hour on mm-hmm. cobblestone. Yeah. So the entire night was us just walking around looking for this hotel. Um, we got there. We couldn't stay there. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but basically we we... Softly, kind of hooked up that night. And then I woke up the next morning after two hours of sleep feeling like. Ab- is this
1: dog shit? Dog I think shit. what yes. you were about to say. Yes, yeah.
4: yes. Feeling like absolute dog shit. Take the bus to get back on the ferry to go over to the UK because I was going to this David Icke talk at Wembley. And I felt terrible. I was nauseous. I was throwing up. And I was like, so this is Amsterdam. And this is this is, this is is an Amsterdam girl. Yeah. I was like, all right, this is my first taste of Holland. Yeah. And um, she hits me up not too long after that and says, I'm so sorry. We had such a bad first date. Um, can I come up to England and hang with you mm. and try this over? I was like, yeah, sure. So she comes up to England. We hang around. We do mushrooms again at a friend's house. And that night we uh, we actually hook up. Mm. And afterwards, I get extremely sick. Now, I, I would have been running myself ragged like a dog. Uh, this It was a three-month tour. And almost every single evening, I had some kind of talk, you know, with just little breaks here and there. So I ran myself ragged. Um, but then I happened to cancel a couple dates. And some people that were going to the talks, they were like, "What? what happened? Are you all right? I, I t- spoke with one of them privately, told her about the symptoms I was having. She was like, I don't mean to freak you out, but that sounds a lot like, um, I used to work at a clinic and that sounds a lot like herpes and herpes outbreak. And she had no way to know what I had been doing the past few nights. So I was like, oh my God, please tell me this isn't it. So I connect with Barbara and I'm like, could this be possible? And she was just like, you know what? Just yesterday, my... Uh, Um, my ex came and told me that he had herpes and he never told me. So I'm going to skip over a bunch of stuff because it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But seven months later, I finally like, you know, I, I was doing all these fasting, you know, detox methods. And I was just thinking, you know what, I'm, The only thing I could do is just clean up my act, you know, not be such a rock star about sex and about, you know, my relationships with women. And if this is it, if it's permanent, I just need to go through with it and deal with it. And uh, seven months later, I decided, you know what? I'm going to beat this somehow. I need to go out and, and get a test and prove that I have it so I can beat it. So I go out, I get the test, and it shows that it was negative. I never had it in the first place. All the itching that I had was like scabies because I was down in uh, Chichen Itza. This was right before December 21st, 2012. So I went down to Chichen Itza, oh, right, the Mayan right, you know, right. temples. Um maybe got scabies there not really sure but i was itching and it was only it was only around my crotch it wasn't on my forearms where mm-hmm. they normally go so it was like you know the the universe was sending me this this grand message like to clean up my act it wasn't going to you know it was going to make me believe for 7 months and many people ask why didn't you just go get a test right away you know i I'm not going to answer that because <laughs> I don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> but uh, it took me seven just months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it took me seven months and then I did. And, and then it all kind of cleared up. But that was when I realized
1: uh, that this was the girl. This was it. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, actually having a really bad first encounter in that respect can be great because you bond Mm -hmm. right you you know seeing someone's vulnerability seeing someone apologize you know seeing things go wrong and how you respond to that I think can bring you a lot closer to someone really quickly than you know I always tell people uh you know if you're in a relationship and you're considering taking it to a higher level Mm -hmm. travel together You You know, because then you'll see each other puking and shitting and, you know, feeling lonely and annoyed and, you know, go through the whole spectrum. Yeah, the less flattering side. Right. That's eventually going to come out anyway. Exactly. It's out of your control. But if you're home, it can be years before that shit comes out.
4: It's true. You know, one of the, you know, off of what you were saying, one of the most beautiful things about when we were chatting on the phone, when I was trying to figure out, you know, could this possibly be what, you know, why I'm sick? Um, she was so forthright and so honest. Right. Um, and then she she started crying and she was like, I feel so incredibly terrible. I was like, There's no reason for either of us to make each other feel worse right, right. now. We're already at a low. Right. Let's let's do what we can to build each other up. That's so we cool. for seven months, you know, we stayed in really good contact just seeing how we were and everything and um she In that time, she told me she really had strong feelings for me, and I told her, I was like, I am really confused right now. I just went through something, you know, same as you, but, you know, I just went through something extremely uh, heartbreaking for me. Um, I had this realization, what have I done to my beautiful body? You know, mm. like this body that you have, you have one of them, and then you give it a permanent virus because you don't respect sex. You don't respect relationships. You just, you know, like want to get your instant gratification. Mm. I I, I wouldn't like my whole facade came tumbling down. So that was the beautiful part of it. We kept saying like, you know, let's, let's just make each other feel better however we can, because we're already both at a low. And the only one I knew that would understand completely what I was going through was her. So that was, it was actually kind of beautiful in the midst of like something that was crazy, scary, right? um, it was a very beautiful bond that we had because of that, that nobody else, you know, that at least we know could understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how romance works. It's funny. I mean, in life in general, how, how often things turn out to be the opposite of what you think they are initially, you know, like bad news ends up, for example, I lived in Barcelona for 25 years because I got robbed, you know, and I, I had no intention of living there uh, I got robbed. I had to get a new passport. While I was waiting for the new passport, I met some people. Some things happened, and one thing led to another. And next thing you know, like I've lived a big part of my life there. Hmm. So, if you had talked to me the morning after I got robbed, I would have said worst fucking thing ever. Yeah. You talk to me twenty five years later, it's like fucking great. You know, like that sort of made my life in a way. That's you know, interesting. Was, yeah, I think, I, and and enough of that happened early on in life that I. I learned to sort of keep this arm's length um, distance from making judgments about whether something is good or bad. You don't know till years later. Yeah, that's that's
4: true. And, you know, um, for some reason this is reminding me of, you ever heard of uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel? Yeah. He wrote a book called uh, Mindsight. Huh. No, I don't know that
1: book. His <clears throat> name sounded familiar.
4: He was saying, um, there was this one part in that where he was saying, like, one of the best... Uh, role models for children going through development is having it doesn't matter if it's an uncle you know a grandparent whatever just anybody who has been through some of their life and not come up with ways of like skating around difficulties or obstacles um, but a way of like making sense of the ups and downs of life right you know, and uh, that's that's what that reminds me of is you know being able to keep like just a little bit of a distance. You allow yourself to express if you if you're feeling upset in the moment, yeah. but um, don't go into this downward spiral right. type of thing because uh, right. apparently one of the best role models for children developing are somebody who's gone through the down times and made sense out of it. And it right. shows that there's, there's always some beauty you can glean from it if you're willing to, you know, stay open to looking for that. Yeah. And it may not happen immediately, but yeah. you know, this, this is life.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a cliche, but I think it's true. You know, the one line I read recently was some, I don't know who it was, but they said, I can't control the winds, but I can furl my sails. Yeah. You know, it's like, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you frame it and how it fits into the narrative. You know, we're all telling our own stories. So, yeah. is that going to is your story going to be tragic and you're a victim? That's up to you. It's not it's not based on the events necessarily.
4: Yeah, you know, the levity that you can bring to situations um you hear this with centenarians, you know, people who live a 100 or older like that it's it's the way they perceive what they deal with. They even do things that you know you're told not to do if you want to live a healthy old age: sure. smoke, drink, right. you know, go right. out and party. But they do it in kind of a ritual manner. It's it's th-
1: what they bring to those acts. It's yeah. not the acts themselves. Just this morning, I read uh, there's a new report: uh, longevity worldwide longevity, and they show yeah. that Spain is about to take uh, number one. Uh, spot from japan and the u.s is dropping from like 42nd to 64th or something in average (sighs) longevity and uh it was really funny you know as i said i've lived in spain most of my adult life so i have a lot of insight and respect for that culture but i love i loved what they said in this report is this article they said um uh they looked the researchers looked at three factors um diet tobacco use and uh, alcohol use. And interestingly, Spain did really poorly in the tobacco and the alcohol (laughs) use. But they still came out number one. And it's like, you know, the reason... You know about the French paradox involving fats? Yes. Right? So the French eat a lot more fat than Americans, and yet they have much lower rates of heart disease. And so that called into question this whole fat causes heart disease thing, which now apparently is falling apart anyway. Um, But it it always, I always thought about that when I was in Spain. It's like, yeah, the Mediterranean diet's great. Olive oil's great. You know, the way they eat lots of vegetables and Mm. blah, blah, blah. But it's not what, it's how. Right. They sit around and have lunch. It lasts two hours. You're always with friends. You're always talking. Yeah, you're drinking wine at lunch. Of course, they drink wine at fucking breakfast. You know, it's not that wine will kill you. It's that being a lonely, depressed wino will kill you. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I mean, when I first got to Spain, I remember commenting. I was in, you know, having coffee in a cafe and, you know, these, like the workers are having a sandwich and they're drinking wine and it's eight o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I remember saying something to a Spanish friend and he said, he said, Chris, Spain is full of alcoholics, but there are no drunks. (laughs) And, And, you know, and that I just thought about that over the years. He's right. Like alcohol is everywhere, but you don't see Spanish people puking in the street because they drank too much. Right, yeah. You know, it's just like, that's not the deal. That's American, Canadian, Northern European. hmm But, uh, yeah, anyway, I don't want to go off on a Spain ranch. <laughs> that's wild, though. I mean, it, it's
4: totally reminding me of, um, and actually the French paradox I just heard was yesterday or two days ago uh, from Nora Goodgoudis. You know who that is?
1: Yeah, I've met her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's what's her book? The, the... well, Primal
4: Body, Primal Mind right. is the, uh, was the, the old recent. one. Oh. well, Primal Fat Burner is that, the oh, the that's the new the one. one, right? Yeah. yeah, I've got
1: that around here somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's
4: that's the one where she she was mentioning that. So, uh, uh, yeah, I felt good when you mentioned that. I was like, yes, I do know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. It's French paradox.
1: <laughs> yeah, nor did she do the work with like MS diet reversing MS and um. What's you that? know, I don't know
4: specifically on that. I know there was, um, who was this other? There was another woman who actually experienced
1: it herself. Right. You know? It was the some right. MS
4: Protocol. You're right, right, right. That was yeah. the book?
1: I met her at the same conference. It was a, a Paleo FX conference mm-hmm. in Austin maybe five years ago. Nora was there, and the other, this other woman we're thinking of was there. We all stayed in the same house. And then we, we were on this panel... Which was very interesting. We were on this panel about psychedelics and ancestral use of psychedelics in health and all that. Mm -hmm. And Nora really knows her shit. Like I didn't know that her expertise extended into that. I thought like she was there because they didn't have anyone else. There were like five of us on the panel. And but lo- she really knows her shit about psychedelics. It's very interesting.
4: That's actually one of the reasons why we connected. You know, she she doesn't uh, make it very public because it's not her main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does have some very deep philosophical beliefs about. Um, you know, it's it's not all about diet with her, which is what I really liked. She mm. she has these uh, these accompanying ideas, which I think kind of gets to the heart of what we were just talking about. You know, like if we're talking ancestral. Um, is it just, well, you know, let's say you have Native American, uh, blood. Does that mean that eating elk is like eating elk? Like they went out on a hunt, right. you know, they did, uh, I was down in South America and, um, in the Amazon, uh, with the Shipibo doing a snake ritual right before going, a snake dance right mm-hmm. before going out on a snake hunt. Now I didn't go on the hunt with them, but I, I did the dance with them and I just thought this was so... Peculiar, you know, but so beautiful that they there 's this reverence before even going out and setting out to to find one, and what does that do? you know like there 's so the placebo effect or some people like calling it the placebo response you know like you put yourself into some kind of state, whether you would call that a truly altered state, dancing can do that for you, breathing yeah. techniques, whatever. Um, but they had this reverence for it. And you know, then the whole tribe would come together and say, like, okay, let's celebrate this. Yeah. But do do we do that if you were to eat the same exact thing, you know, and have the same exact exactly. genetics? Do we do the accompanying things around it? It
1: gets back to the, the not what but how. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's fascinating. Have you ever heard of a book called In the Absence of the Sacred? Gerrymander?
4: I've heard of Jeremy Mander, and I'm pretty sure that that sounds very familiar. Yeah, he
1: wrote, uh, his earlier book was called Seven Arguments for the Elimination of Television, I think. Yeah. Maybe I've, five, I don't remember how many arguments. But I, I, I just, I love the title of that book, In the Absence of the Sacred. You know, I think about that so much uh, in terms of civilization being essentially a mechanism for draining sacredness from life you know mm-hmm. the earth is dead animals are non-human and therefore can be abused and disregarded uh non-white men essentially everyone except non-white upper class men is, yeah. is less human lower in some on way. the totem pole yeah yeah and then open to exploitation and and it's it's You know, and then, of course, you can't spread that around without getting it on yourself. So then, you know, we've got all the shame and guilt and, you know, life. And now we've got even the sort of the cutting edge intellectual movement at the moment. The sort of new atheist thing is like even draining. Like if you're really smart, then you can't believe in any supernatural intervention or, you know, it's like, okay, you can't even have that now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's. It's interesting, the trajectory away from depth and nuance in that respect. Yeah, you know, like, uh,
4: studying a little bit of history, I wouldn't say, like, um, by far not an expert on it. But the, um, you know, I kind of get the the push away from, from what European Middle Age religion was. I, I get the push away from that. There was yeah. rich... Right. you know spice traders now living amongst them that were thinking these this religion and and like these people just buying into whatever the person behind the pulpit is saying is yeah. it's kind of ridiculous so there's big push but it's like a pendulum push where it just went to the other uh, the other extreme I kind of feel
1: yeah um and the, and the lack of subtlety and nuance like distinguishing religion from a spiritual awareness mm-hmm Right? Like, religion is bullshit. I think, you know, most people would agree the Pope is not fucking infallible, you know? And the Cardinals are fucking little boys. I mean, they're... Yeah. You know, it's a power trip.
4: Yeah. And the word religion, so, like, you know, at least what I try to do is separate the idea between religion and religious institutions. Like, what man does with religion. Right. Um, And, like... This is just something that I've kind of been toying around with in my mind, but um, have you ever heard of the four pillars of society being mm. science, philosophy, religion, and art? Mm. So, like, you go as far back or as far across the world as possible, and you'll find those four pillars in every culture. Um, They're they done quite differently. Um, and I don't know if that's if that's 100% replete, but it seems like the, the reason why they call it the four pillars of society, I've been curious about that is... Are these like science, is that, is that an industry, is that a field, or is that a way that consciousness can operate, gathering raw data, just looking at it. But once you gather raw data, like you're a child and you have very little concept for what this world is you're in, you're gathering raw data, you're witnessing events, but then the extrapolating of meaning, the, the extract, extracting some kind of philosophical meaning that's no longer a scientific uh, conscious event, that would be more of a philosophical one. Mm. And religion comes from relegare, which is to bind, you know, and you mm. could actually look at uh, Daniel LaRusso and Mr. Miyagi binding that uh, bonsai tree back together when it was broken, like binding it so it can become stronger. That's the root of the word religion. So like, is that, is religion a, a, a conscious thing where we, you commit to something, you know, with that religious fervor? Um, And then from there when you commit to something you do something you do something about it because like so you witness the world that's that's the scientific event of just gathering the raw data then the philosophy is drawing meaning from it what does it mean then the religion is I must do something about it committing yourself to doing something about it whether it's nothing or whether it's you know a crusade whatever. And then the art is the actual process of you performing and executing that, like giving it to the world, doing it through your body language, your movements, your words, your connectivity, whatever it might be. And that's just, I mean, I'm not trying to like push that as an idea. It's something I've been toying with lately. But um, as far as religion, I totally agree with you. Like spiritual pursuit and religion, a lot of times they just get muddied in the same Big old category together because and,
1: and when it comes sorry, go, go ahead. ahead,
4: well, I was just going to say, you know like so I feel that um, saying that now we need to you know we have too much science we 're too smart to be held back by these these woo woo ideas, um, but just really kind of like does one have to negate the other is is something that is invisible. You know, if we if our science and our technology cannot detect it now, because that also has to do with have we come up with the right, you know, um, experiment to even find out what we're talking about or what we're looking at is anything that's not proven just complete woo woo and BS uh, that's that's the thing we need to. I don't. I don't know if we'll ever arrive at an answer. I think it's just constantly evolving. And you know, for me, I feel that at least in my life, there's this mystery that keeps calling me forward. I I, I come to know things. I come to have, you know, some kind of wisdom, and I use what I have learned. Um, but what is that deeper underlying question that keeps me moving forward? And so there's always some mystery, and uh, I think the sacred is. Um, for me, at least, what the sacred is is really just acknowledging that um, pushing my will affects the context that i am that I am a part of mm. you know i'm i 'm am, I am a part of a great web, and in dynamic systems theory, you change one small part of one system you don 't really understand what the mm. full ramifications and all those other systems that you 're changing right um, so to me, I, I kind of feel like it 's all part of an ecosystem mm. and humbling yourself knowing that you know at least for me you know i didn't go to school for any of this shit i just read what i find interesting um but having the humility to be able to listen to other people when they have uh counterpoints and realizing that the you know like the differences among people in their opinions and who they are and the way they you know they walk their path um that's where the sacred is actually found it's so easy to just like fall in line with group think and everybody who thinks the way you want to think and you don't have to challenge anything but therein lies the um you know are we students of life do we
1: ever stop being students of life yeah. you know how important is inquiry yeah yeah one of my favorite lines and people listen to this podcast have heard me repeat it a million times but uh honor those who seek the truth flee from those who claim to have found it ah uh, yeah yeah i mean yeah, I agree with you. As long as someone's on a pursuit and has that humility to acknowledge that they haven't answered the most important questions and probably never will, right? that's somebody I can learn from. People who claim to have answers turn me off.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, answers and questions. I feel like, to me, life is a quest, and that's the mm. root word of question. You know, mm. having a question, not having things figure out, figured out it sets you off on a path to right you know just to explore and um maybe you never find the answer but the journey gave you something you know bestowed some kind of gift upon you but you have answers what is an answer it's defined it's a box you're already boxed in it's already done and settled done. Yeah. what what do you do with that yeah what do you do with an answer you just say yes sir yes ma'am yeah you
1: know? well and what i was going to say earlier um in terms of, we were talking about religion versus spiritual pursuit mm. or, or awareness or openness or whatever. Um, one of the, the things I find fascinating about plant medicines is that they fortify or nourish um, a skepticism about what is real and who who has claims to authority. Right. Where does that authority really come from? They're very subversive. Mm -hmm. politically at least in the context of our modern world which is why i've always found it very telling that you know you look at all these societies that have had access to psychedelic um, substances Mm -hmm. without exception they see them as at least correct me if i'm wrong but as far as i know there's no exception to them seeing these things as the greatest gift from the gods the absolute greatest, whether we're talking about ancient Greece or we're talking about, you know, the Mayans or, or you know, whatever. Um, they see them as this incredible gift. And here we are in the United States. You get caught with 100 hits of acid at a Grateful Dead show. You're going to be in a cage for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's non-addictive. It nobody dies from an overdose. Not toxic. The money's not going to Colombian drug gangs. Right. It's like whatever explanation that they have for making these things so illegal, it doesn't apply to psychedelics, and yet they're so fucking scared of them.
4: Mm-hmm. you know
1: schedule one, yeah, the
4: hardest narcotics you can find no
1: absolutely no clinical use, no beneficial. What are you talking about, mm-hmm. man? so i I to me, that indicates that we live in a society that is based on such a profound lie that the most terrifying thing to the powers that be is to have people see through that lie, yeah. whereas other societies that aren't based on a lie they welcome it, you know, yeah, take that shit and look more deeply into reality. Why I, not? I would totally agree with you um you know i've been I've been studying this for quite some
4: time, and, you know it was it was my privilege when I was making Psychedelica, to meet with some of the the greatest researchers in this whole field. Um, Dennis McC- uh, McKenna, which we both know. Yeah. Um, uh, Stan Groff, Ralph Metzner, Graham Hancock.
1: Oh, great. Um, Did you meet with Peter Gorman by any chance? No, no, yeah, I he, haven't. He was the, the guy who brought Sapo to the world, uh, Amazon Explorer. Okay. Yeah, he's based in Texas. I can no. introduce you if you want. That he's, would be great. He's a character. He's He's like legendary Amazon Explorer and uh the first person to write about ayahuasca in the popular press. He was uh, editor of High Times in the seventies.
4: Okay, right? I do know that name. I'm so surprised I don't like uh I didn't know this story. He's in that pantheon him. you're talking yeah. about,
1: yeah. And also Stanley Krippner, I could introduce you to him. He's that'd be great. I do I do know of him. He's an old well. buddy of Stan Groff and yeah. he tripped with Timothy Leary and had a premonition of Kennedy getting shot while he was tripping. It's, Is that right? Yeah, really. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he's an interesting dude. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. You, well, so meant, you're talking about meeting these amazing people.
4: Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of my question with them was, um, could you explain a little bit of our our human... Uh, ancestry with these plants because it's a very specific class of plants these serotonergics, they hit a very specific um, receptor site in the brain, 5-HT2A receptors, unique plants and you know f- just wondering like A, why why is there a class of plants that mimics uh, neurotransmitters not just serotonin, they, they agonize that receptor site but they also they cause cascades of different neurotransmitters um, to flood through the body but that's, that's just the way that you can look at the correlations of, like, what's physiologically happening when you take a psychedelic. But that's not what you're thinking about when you're on a psychedelic. Right. Um, it really... So, part of my question was, with this class of plants, you know, how have we historically looked at these plants, and why do we look at them so differently now, and when did it start? When did it start changing? And sure as shit, most of them were saying, you know, it started. You you can even just look back into the Bible of the uh, the cutting down of the sacred groves of Asherah. Um, these were um, trees, but you know, the, the, like some people were trying to say they were cannabis plants, but they were actually more like um, logs put into the ground and carved and stuff like that. But around this time um uh if i'm pronouncing that correctly there's there's a lot of cannabis use and there was a lot of plants that they don't mention by name uh in this time if you look at chris bennett he goes back into the history of cannabis use as a sacrament and you know he turned me on to um what's called gonur tepe in present-day uzbekistan Uh, it's the Bactria margiana archaeological complex or BMAC. And if you look at that, 5,000 or roughly 4,000 years ago, um, it might be 4,000 BC, but I think it was 4,000 years ago, there's this huge two-football field-sized complex, a temple complex, where they were mass-producing this psychotropic beverage, and they did scraping samples to find there was cannabis, poppy, and ephedra. So ephedra, methamphetamines, poppy, opium, cannabis, obvious. You know, and they were making lar- these huge vats where they were making ma- massive amounts of it, more than you would need for that very temple complex. Sure. Meaning, this was right on the Silk Road. Four thousand years ago was oh, when it ended, so nice. they were transporting this stuff. You know, probably via the Scythians, the horseback um, right. Scythians all the way from uh china all the way down into africa europe all the way up into russia down into india might have even the Scythians might have been the northern invaders that you hear about in the vedas um but there's cannabis cultures you know that soma may have been soma may have been right. the persian hayoma uh, which is very similar um isn't so, like there, our like,
1: history, soma also is uh, thought to possibly have been amanita muscaria.
4: Yeah, there's. So Chris Bennett has a, a differing view on that, right. and I I don't know enough to to really stand on either side. Yeah, I've read a lot of our Gordon Wasson's work, awesome, and I've also right, let of yeah. uh, read a lot of Chris Bennett's work, and Chris thinks it's uh, a lot more likely when looking at the um, uh, the actual effects that were being explained. Um, to, to be cannabis and, um, the one plant, the, the one contention to that is it's probably some people are saying it's ephedra because when they explain the plant, um, it has no, um, seeds on it. It's just like kind of like a straight stalk. And if you look at ephedra, that's the closest thing, Mm. um, that you could probably find. Right. But then again, I, I kind of like the fact that there's a mystery about it. So, as far as when it comes to soma, I really don't know. I like posing the question, but I And don't it know. also
1: could have been different things at different times and different seasons and different parts of the yeah, world. True. You know, it's kind of relating to our earlier conversation, the assumption that there's an answer. Yeah. Is a reductive habit we have that doesn't really reflect reality.
4: Yeah, and once you arrive at an answer, how much does that serve you? Would it would it not serve you to to Mm. still remain somewhat
1: open? Because so often answers turn out to be either wrong or partial. Yeah. You know, let's say that there's a they find a you know a piece of pottery in northern India and they scrape it and it's a fedra and it's like, there it is, it's answered. You know, and then 20 years later, they find another pottery in Syria, and there's opium in it. Like, oh, wait, well, yeah. know, it's different. Yeah, I mean, science does that all the time, you know.
4: Yeah, make these big claims off yeah. of one find, Especially, and-
1: like, archaeology. We find so, like, or or, you know, evolution, you mm-hmm. know. Like, I just wrote in Sex at Dawn, a book I published eight years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, anatomically modern humans have existed for 200,000 years. That's like catechism. That's there. Everyone knows it. Everyone agrees. No problem. It's perfect, you know. So we've been, you know, uh, agriculturalists for, you know, 3% or whatever compared to the Mm 200,000. Then they find some shit in Morocco a a year and a half ago, and now they're saying, oh, no, sorry, 300,000. Is that right? Yeah. Anatomically modern humans are now thought to have existed for 300,000 years. And it's like, wait, that was a bedrock truth. Mm-hmm. You know? Like what? Yeah. Do you know who Franz Duvall is? The primatologist? He's Dutch. He's a great guy. I know I know, I know that name.
4: A bonobo expert. Yeah, he's okay. written a
1: bunch of books. He's, he's a really cool guy. Anyway, I, was, I had him on the podcast one time, and we were talking about bonobos and chimps and the differences. And and I said, uh, you know, could bonobos and chimps reproduce? And he said, well, it hasn't been tried experimentally, but I think probably, yes, because they have the same chromosomes and the DNA matches up and all that. And I said, well, then, why are they different species? I thought that was the definition of species. And he was like, well... He said, Chris, never ask a biologist to define species. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. And I was like, wait a minute, man. That's like the foundational concept of the entire scientific discipline. Yeah. Like, if you can't say what a species is, then what the fuck are we talking about? Right. Yeah. It's. It's crazy. It feels like we're on a moving ship. It's already sailing, but we're
4: building the ship as it's moving. You know, we we rest upon truths that for now we can say this is Let's just accept
1: this for now. So we
4: can move forward and we're not like for 400,000 years wondering, like, you know, the same, you know, pining over the same question.
1: Well, you mentioned placebo. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the major factor that has to be considered in every experimental design in medicine. And nobody knows how it happens. Right. Nobody can explain it. But we're just going to sail past it for now. Right. And agree that, well, we, you know, we'll work it into the design so that it won't, you know, affect the outcome. Placebo is more powerful than any painkiller known outside of the opioids, I believe. Right. And yet we're going to ignore it there's a book called um Lives of a Cell it's a classic hmm. it's one of the first like popular science books i think it was written in the early 70s louis thomas who was an oncologist and he was the head of on, i think he was the head of like albert einstein medical college or something he's a very prominent new york um doctor and researcher and anyway, so he writes this book. It was Gaia. It was about the time of Gaia. And so his idea, there's a photo of the Earth on the cover. Mm-hmm. And it's like part Earth, part cell. And his he took the Gaia principle and applies it. He says, well, actually, Earth is like a cell. It's got the membrane, the atmosphere. It's got, you mm-hmm. know, and then he looks at cells and, he you know, he sort of applies these principles to medicine. Anyway, long roundabout way to get to my point which is that at the beginning there's an essay where he's talking about folk cures for warts and he says like we all know it like uh, in in Ireland if you've got a wart what you do is you cut a potato in half and you like bury half of it in the backyard under the moon and the other half you rub on the wart and you go to sleep and it'll be gone or in, you know, in Russia they use garlic, they rub garlic and then put it on your head and you have to have it on your head for five hours, whatever. Everybody's got their like silly little thing and they're different, but they all work Mm -hmm. and we laugh at this and we say, yeah, you know, Whatever. And he said, but looking at this as an oncologist, what's happening? What's happening is you're, you're performing some ritual that interacts with your belief system. And you go to bed. And while you're sleeping, your body distinguishes the wart cells from the non-wart cells sends some, something, whether we don't know exactly the chemicals mm-hmm. involved or the mechanisms involved, but something that eliminates one type of cell without affecting the healthy cells around it. And in, the mat- in a matter of hours, you wake up and this foreign or, or this anomalous cell growth is eliminated. This is what we're trying to do. This is the holy grail of oncology, and yet we 're throwing chemicals and radiation and surgery, and none of us are looking into this this existing mechanism yeah. that we all know about that 's harmless, and that should be the the focus of all our research i've found this
4: this very same topic like so fascinating that um we know that placebo works. we have to account for it in all like you were saying in in all studies but we're so fascinated with science and, you know, like these these pharmaceuticals and, you know, things that we can come up with, Yeah, we have no concept for why we need to account for this placebo effect that's annoying to the scientists, if you think about it. Right. Oh, well, not, not the scientists as much as the, the pharmaceutical companies that need uh, whatever, you know, Prozac to perform, you know, one to 2% better than the placebo effect, yeah. which placebo effect... Uh, I think I was just reading a book by Kelly Brogan, where she was like fifty to sixty percent efficacy on just about everything they you know they they try. there's fifty to sixty percent of the best stuff that's out there can be accounted for just by the placebo effect alone, yeah, and that's that in and in and of itself is so fantastic, and it leads me to like researching what I try and do is I try and find like um Uh, fields that I really like researching and then integrating them into other fields. Right. So looking deeply into psychedelics, I found this, uh, he was an anesthesiologist turned quantum theorist and his name is Stuart Hameroff. And he, um, he authored many papers with, um, Sir Roger Penrose. And it's just this Mm. alternative idea of where to, how consciousness arises, what is consciousness? Mm. What's the nature of it? And, um, Penrose didn't have a mechanism, Stuart Hamroff did, so they teamed up, and Stuart Hamroff was focusing on the microtubules, which is like the fascial or the structural component, connective tissue component of the neurons. And they have the, these two components to a microtubule, it's tubulin A and tubulin B, and they like can switch configurations based upon whatever. It's who, in the axon? Or? It's in the pyramid cell. So there's spindles or bundles, if you will, of these microtubules, and they also transmit information with these tiny little proteins across the microtubules. Uh, He says that um, Alzheimer's is kind of these microtubules coming apart uh-huh. and so they can't send the the proteins across i this is still kind of new to me but the thing that i found most interesting was like he's talking about microtubules this entire time and then all of a sudden he starts talking psychedelics oh and the one thing about psychedelics is it seems to push consciousness into the Planck scale which is quantum the quantum realm if you were to magnify your hand 10 billion times you're at the atomic scale if you magnify it one trillion trillion times you're at the Planck scale where you're you're looking at photons and seeing their behavior, and the curious thing about like the the Planck scale is things don't behave the way that the you know modern physics does. Right. Um, at least we don't understand it. It seems a retrograde causality. How can something in the future mm. affect the present? Something mm-hmm. in the present affect the past? As well as non locality. Right. And so I'm talking with Stuart right now, trying to understand it better. But my mind is is like ten steps ahead, being like what does this mean? Does this mean shamans could potentially be, because uh, it's not just psychedelics, but psychedelics and psychotropics tend to, whereas anesthesia slows down oscillations in the microtubules, meaning it's, it's dampening memory, and you know uh, it actually selectively erases memory. But this has the opposite effect. It ramps up the oscillations, and he says, I suspect it's creating more intensity and frequency of conscious moments in the Planck scale. So I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this and I'm thinking, what does this mean? Like if the, if, if this holds up, then shamans could rightfully be seen as, um, you know, quantum surfers, skilled quantum surfers. You're just entering consciousness into a different scale of reality. It's here. But what have, the, what have you always heard about shamans walking between the worlds, coming back with useful information for the tribe on where mm. the game is, where to hunt, right. what the weather's going to be like, you know, where the illness is inside somebody's body, and uh, bringing this back full circle. The reason why I find this fascinating is because, uh, you know, in a lot of these experiments, the double slit experiment, and you, you have to take the observer Witnessing something into account right, so if the observer witnessing something at the planck scale that 's using technology, but if psychedelics are another kind of technology that brings your conscious awareness, not just your eye, your vision, but your conscious awareness into the planck scale and Sorry if I'm being too heady here. It's, no, just, it's no, super it's fascinating. It's interesting, yeah. um, like, what does that potentially mean? That shamans, now you listen to Graham Hancock, potentially could go back 70,000 years using psychotropic berries and these, you know, painted caves and rock walls. Uh, you know, so the psychedelics might be one of the oldest technologies of man to look beyond the veil of our mental habituation Mm -hmm. you know we find something it works and we don't question it we just always use it and who knows maybe that's maybe that's the the primate thing they don't have the mechanism to question beyond like yeah i know i could drive with my hands but what if i try driving with my feet or you know like not really questioning beyond that, i don't know if that really holds up. This is where my mind is going as I'm diving deeply into microtubules and psychedelics effects on them um but what he's what Stuart was saying was it looks like microtubules are the only thing the neurons cannot account for uh consciousness entering the uh the quantum realm, but the microtubules can they it's something like magnitudes more information processing in the microtubules so um That was, that was, that's the latest rabbit hole that I've gotten, gone down is like, so what, what is he seeing in, in psychedelics effects on microtubules and why does it create some kind of mechanism for people to, what do psychedelics do? They cause you to, like you were saying, question some of the, the, the silly things in society. Like, wait a minute, why are we doing things like this when... There's plenty of evidence to show that this is destructive of our habitat. There's no other species that seems to intentionally or, you know, ignorantly destroy their habitat and they just can't stop. Even though they intellectually understand that they're destroying it, they just can't seem to stop, you know. But there's these class of plants that can, you know, these ones specifically have the ability to cause us to, you know, snap out of it for a brief moment and take a look at, you know, like oh, man, how I treated that person, you know, or, like, you yeah. know, think of 10 years ago. Man, the way I talked to that person, I never cared until now, you know, this well, empathy. Yeah,
1: and this brings us to the the work you're doing now about waking up. Is that the subject of the... Is it a film you're working on now? It's or a film. Or? It's
4: going to be a follow-up to Pete's last film, um, The Magic Pill. So we're looking for, you know, Netflix. Um, we haven't decided on distribution yet, um, we're still kind of in development pre-production phase, mm. but, um, but yeah, so we're, we're going to focus on psychedelics, but psychedelics are simply part of the plant kingdom. Plant kingdom's been here longer than, you know, far longer than, you know, modern human, you know, so that's a tool that's always been here. And for the most part, it's been used for awakening in some way, shape mm. or form, whether it's the shaman, cause the tribes weren't always doing the you know the psychedelics it was usually the shaman and right. they would come back and use that information to heal the tribe or to you know to help them in some way but yeah to awaken so what else is there there's this um this woman that i'm really trying to like lock down in this film her name's Balin elspeth and she does tea ceremonies just it's A ritual with a plant, it's not psychedelic, you know, but it's still, it's creating the container of ritual. Same thing that yoga does and meditation Mm -hmm. is you make demarcations. This is the beginning of my practice. Now this is the end of my practice. There's some altered state that you go into. I mean, getting hit in the head with a baseball, that's an altered state. Not eating for two weeks, that's an altered state. Eating, you know, different foods for two weeks. So what we're talking about when we're talking about altered states is really... What is default consciousness? Is yeah. it societally built? you know and that's the one thing that um, science is now showing that these psychedelics definitively do is break you out of default mode network, which is you know several regions in the brain that communicate when you're daydreaming or wondering what this person's thinking about you or what you're going to have for dinner and you know just daydreaming, you're using a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, and these psychedelics seem to snap you out of default mode you know consciousness yeah so what is that and the why like why does that mechanism exist you know sometimes the science like the terminology bogs me down but when you just look at it there's a class of plants that you eat and they have the the tendency at least it could be very scary but they have the tendency to break down your belief structures to to allow you to see beyond it to to experience something that might even feel like death um you know these have been used for um uh ayahuasca the the vine of the dead or the vine of souls a lot of people experience what they would say like i was dismembered or i was devoured or i was mm. i died somehow
1: yeah certainly ego death yeah
4: you know yeah. in in that respect so why i you know to me i i don't even try to answer that question anymore myself i try to ask the right people What are your thoughts on that? Like, why is there a a class of plants that does this? And why have they been so regarded throughout human history until, coming back to what we were talking about before, until what? Until the real push of, not monotheism as a philosophy, but as a political Mm -hmm. uh, and militant structure. Right. So this force, you know, like when people question, they want to be off doing their own thing, you know, they want to connect with nature, Uh, so we'll call them witches, you know, we'll call them, you know, whatever, um, pagans pagans all the way up until today. We put different names on them, but it's like, now you're just, you're a druggie. If you try a
1: psychedelic, you know, don't you know, that's
4: a narcotic. (laughs) That's a hard narcotic. It's schedule one. Yeah. Who told you that?
1: Yeah. It's not even a narcotic. People don't know what narcotic means. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. I let, I, before I, I, we're running out of time And I feel like we're just uh, getting started here yeah. This is great uh, Like I I, I don't want to let you go Without getting a bit about like who the fuck you are I don't even <laughs> know man I've been trying to figure this out So are you said you didn't Like you didn't go to university
4: No I, so I went to a community college um, Because I, I So I was in the military from oh, okay. 17 to 23 uh, 17? Yeah They even accept you at 17? They do if your parents are there with you and i woke up one day and i was i was in a band i was in a rock band had a mohawk where'd you live uh this was in central pennsylvania in harrisburg pennsylvania No
1: shit dude i lived in harrisburg
4: did you really enola pa enola no shit i was was right outside hershey oh yeah yeah Yeah.
1: i was born in western pa and lived there till i was 15 beaver falls near pittsburgh okay Um, yeah and then uh, when I was in college, my parents moved to Enola right right near Harrisburg. No way. And uh, they lived there for 20-some years. So I spent a lot of time in central PA.
4: Yeah. So the uh, yeah. uh, Harrisburg International Airport, uh-huh. right next to it, Three Mile Island. Three Mile Island. Same we had to... a
1: view of Three Mile Island from our living room. Did you really? Yeah. It's beautiful.
4: So right next to that is obviously the Air Force Base. It's the 193rd Special Operations Wing. So uh-huh. I was a crew chief on the C-130s. Um, and so,
1: 30s are cargo planes. The
4: cargo planes, it's the only cargo planes with the prop props, engines. They're
1: like four props, yep. and they were using those to send the fucking missiles over to Europe. I remember. Yeah, yep. I went to college in upstate New York, and they used to fly out of the base there in the Finger uh-huh. Lakes they're huge they're big yeah and they're
4: slow yeah slower than the speed of smell almost you know it's like i
1: don't think i've ever heard that phrase before the speed of smell (laughs) oh it's around it's around (laughs) cut a fart in the back seat like (laughs) all right you got three seconds (laughs) three seconds up there yeah so Uh, so
4: university man i um i only went because i like military was like hey we'll pay you so wait a minute how do you go from like
1: i'm in a band with a mohawk to you know what i'm gonna join the fucking air force you know what it was uh really you thought you you had herpes
4: no well not yet not yet no that's (laughs) that's uh that's act three uh what happened first was um you know my dad was a lifer in the military um going all the way back to apparently the Mayflower, like my, every male in my dad's side of the family have, have been in the military and served in some kind of war. And I didn't break that pattern. And I didn't even, I didn't do it intentionally. But anyway, I woke up one day, I was in a band, this, you know, punk rock, love chili peppers, just want to do my own thing and rock, you know. And then one day I woke up and I was like, wait. This means for the rest of my life, if I want to do this, I need to keep making music that people like enough to buy. A lot of people have to buy it for me to be able to live the way I want to live and I was like, being an artist is too hard i need to i need like so i was I remember talking with my dad, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I got a friend who flies you know three flights a week on a you know um commercial airliner and he's making yada yada." And I was like, that's what I want to do. Work three days a month or whatever it was and make that much money. So I said, I want to join the military. I want to I want to become a pilot. Mm. And he was like, um, he was Army. He was like, go Air Force. So I did. I That day we went, took the oath. I regretted it immediately. Went into basic training, regretted it more. Regretted it until my last year in the military where I started loving it because I love the team, the camaraderie. Mm. Um, but... Um, as soon as I got back from tech school, I was still in the military and uh, started a new band. We got on Lollapalooza. We're playing with The Perfect Circle, Jane's Addiction, Audio Slave, Incubus, yada, yada. Started going great, but I was still in the military. So I had this buzz cut going around, touring.
1: And, and you're playing guitar?
4: Uh, well, I was a singer and I did play
1: guitar. Um, you're wearing a... There's a- What's that called? Uh, the chip, the... the.
4: Oh, yeah. This is my bassist. He actually lives out here. He's a session bassist now. now what's
1: that called? A pick. pick, yeah. I, yeah. He's yeah. wearing a pick on a necklace. That's why I thought you were a guitarist. Yeah,
4: well, I'd, I definitely play guitar now. Um, I'll be doing that at the... So you were the, of the front man. Society. Yeah, so I was the front mm-hmm. man's Songwriter. Also composed a lot of the you know, um, the stuff on... Uh, like the drums, bass, synth, all that on computer
1: what was the name of the band?
4: Hyrosonic, like hieroglyphics, but uh-huh. Hyrosonic. Okay. Um so long story short, basically, you know, um that was that was the only and I got pulled out halfway through my first semester. I was doing really really well, but I got pulled out because it was 2003 Operation Enduring Freedom. Um and I was supposed to I was scheduled in in basically like in one month from that time, I was uh, scheduled to go out to Qatar, and so I shaved my head. I was all gung ho. I was all ready, and then all Were of you a sudden, pilot? no, not okay. yet. I was working towards it, but I was just a crew chief mechanic, you Mechanical. know, glorified okay. gas attendant as right. they call them. Right. Um, but it was like three days before leaving, and that was when um, George. W Bush landed on the Lincoln aircraft car- uh, uh, carrier and said uh mission accomplished let's let's go home and so they canceled all the orders until a week later they were like wait no one's coming home we're not we're not bringing anybody home so instead of reinstating my orders that would have taken too much time so they just skipped over me so I didn't have to go overseas um hmm. very interesting but that was how that went and i never ended up going back to school uh but from that point Um, we're in the special operations wing, we would fly over and we had like, you know, I wasn't allowed to hear the message that we would broadcast to the, you know, to the areas that we were flying sorties over. So I was asking, like, what what are we broadcasting? What are we telling these countries? Well, you know, like, I know it's not even in English. What are we telling them? They're like, oh, we well, need a security clearance for that. I'm like, what kind of a security clearance? And they're like, well, you would need yada, yada. And I was like, well, what do I need to get that clearance? I want to know what I'm actually, I'm in this unit. I'm supporting this mission. They were like, oh, well, you need, like, 10 more years, you know, if you want to get to that point or you need to go into this field. And I was like, so I need to give you 10 more years of my life before I know what I'm doing, mm. what I'm serving. Right. And that was my big awakening. Because before that, I was just like, I just want to live my life, make some money and, you know, like, and play some music and whatever. This was the point where I was like, I, I just don't even get what I'm doing. Like, you know, you're you're paying me to be a part of a mission that I'm not allowed to know what I'm serving, ultimately. And it I, it was this awakening where I was like, what am I doing with my life? What am I serving? You know, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? Am I going to be the guy who just worked until he retired? And, you know, that's fine. That's great. You know, but that was when I realized that's not me. Mm. So I started independently researching. Uh, I have a subscription to audible.com. I would say I have an audible education. Mm. You know, uh, every, every month I'm listening to, I'm on two or three audiobooks every single month. The ones that aren't on audiobook, I buy the books, I research Mm. them, and um, for Gaia, I'm gonna be starting up a a show here soon, flying people into Boulder, interviewing them at the studios there, um, which is just basically on a lot of the kinds of stuff that I'm already into, psychedelics, sex, uh, consciousness, um, just deeper philosophical questions as to why we're here, what culture is doing to the mind, the masses of the uh you know uh our mind, our psychology um and so yeah so that's that's really what kind of brought me to this was um my my friend says there's there's two modes of thinkers there's those who like having the model to think within and they can, they can organize it really well, and then there's the others who they don't want somebody else's model they want to build their own model and that seems to be more of how i am like i still don't even know what i'm doing who i am to answer your question Mm. you know like am i a musician a filmmaker an independent researcher a talk show host like uh, these are things that i do will i be doing them in 10 years i don't know i'm Mm. also a father you know i'm a seeker an explorer um so in a sense, like uh, the more I live my life, the less I can answer that question: Who am I? So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, ask me when I'm dead. Yeah. Ask other people when I'm dead; they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's better. Yeah. All right, we stopped. We took a pause to take a piss, and then we came back and we started talking and just went off. And th- and then it's that awkward moment where I'm like, dude, we should be recording this. Yeah, music. <laughs> yeah, we we're talking about music and different animals and uh, how how music is experienced culturally and all that. He, uh, the guy I, I was talking about who, um, I forget his name right now, but, uh, the ethnomusicologist maybe 10 episodes back. Um, he argued that, that music is experienced through a cultural lens and that, uh, you know, that, that to use the example I just used with you, like, someone from a culture that had never heard western music would not recognize the feeling of nostalgia in yesterday by paul mccartney or whatever a song that you and i both would hear even if we didn't understand the words just the key and the you know the like the, a minor scale yeah. isn't
4: uh, i think in asian culture isn't uh, isn't a sad thing right and actually major scales uh, and i'm just pulling this from what i saw in that uh explained series on music um like a major scale in some cultures is what they play at funerals Hmm. so there's a different you're right there's this different cultural lens but how they attach to that pattern yeah music is just patterns
1: i mean he he even so we were talking about perfect pitch Mm -hmm. and he said that for someone to have perfect pitch in india would be a different thing than having perfect pitch in the in the west is that right? Yeah, and I don't understand music well enough to know what that means. But I, what I thought I understood by perfect pitch, uh, apparently is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I would have thought it was independent. It's like, it's like being able to feel when it's exactly zero degrees Fahrenheit, right? And, and, like I would say, well, even if you're in a place that measures degrees in centigrade, then it's exactly you know what 12 degrees or whatever corresponds Mm -hmm. uh but he was saying no it's a different it's a it would be conceptually different somehow i don't know
4: that's beyond me i've been a musician my entire life and i still don't really understand music theory and and all that goes into it i i can hear a song and play it just by ear but if you were to tell me the type of scale i would
1: you know mystery i mean music is one of the great mysteries of the world as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. of human consciousness i i you know i'm very i'm sort of a frustrated musician in the sense that i hear it really deeply and experience it deeply and can feel profound emotional connection through music but i don't play anything mm-hmm. so it's uh it and i've a very good friend and i talked about this a lot in that episode with the ethnomusicologist my best friend growing up is an extremely talented musician like Mm. one of these guys who plays you know every instrument and was you know composing symphonies and playing in a funk band and you know just all over the place and um, he and I talked about music all the time and one of the things that that I came away with is the sense and, and maybe it's just him but he was very um I think I experience more mystery in music than he does because he understands it so much better. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would hear something and just be like Fuck! I feel the I feel what that person is expressing. I feel, and Mike's like, "No, man, that's a minor six, you know, the d- declination." I mean, of course, it makes you feel like everybody. It's like a trick, you know. Yeah. It's it's like I see the magic, and he's like, "Well, he sees the here's mechanism. how you do it." Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. There's there's something that seems to be lost. Just but you know, because like the more I learn about music, I definitely want to learn more about music theory. But the more I learn about music, there is still a way to um, you know, step out of that, studying it. Uh, I also, I'm a screenwriter. So like Mm. studying screenwriting, there is a formula. There's so much of a formula there that, um, that it's incredible, but really what it is is, you know, it's, it's the in between. It's the way it comes together. Like, okay, every cat has this kind of anatomy, but not every cat's the same. Right. You know, so that's the uh, same with humans, same with just about everything. Like, they're, they're those fundamental things that make it, oh, yeah, that's music and that's, you know, this phenomena and that's dance. And, you know, but kind of even getting back to what we were talking about, you know, sacred plants have been a part of culture for, you know, as long as, well, maybe not as long as we can go back, but, you know, pretty far back. But another accompanying phenomena is music. And then another uh, accompanying phenomena is dance. And they're very closely interwoven. If you think about it, like, music, it's known as being good when it makes you want to move. And sometimes it makes you want to just sit there and experience it. But, like, that's an interesting phenomena that you have, like, this, this... drum beat and it just keeps going and then you have this kind of like less consistent melody on top of it and there's something about the drum beat that makes your body want to move to it and there's something about the less consistent melody that really takes you on a journey in this kind of finite amount of time so um so you want to express yourself back to the music by dancing being a part of it and like that's i was a musician you know i have played in front of thousands of people before and the the best moments in the world are the moments where I don't feel like we're doing it anymore as a band it's just happening it's it's happening it's yeah. it's uh, something that's in the room it's a phenomena that's happening and everyone is simply saying yes right the music is coming through us we're doing things I don't even remember afterwards people like dude when you just went off off script and started like freestyling lyrics I'm like I did that <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know but yeah. it was just the moment the yes. moment happened and like you could call
1: that trance you you know you know there's there's this amazing essay called hear that long snake moan by michael ventura and it's about I, i'll send it to you it's like i've got a pdf somewhere uh it's about the origins of blues and therefore jazz and rock and roll Coming from West Africa by way of the West Indies, mixing different cultures in the West Indies, then into New Orleans, mixing with the voodoo culture. Jelly Roll Morton was raised in a whorehouse by his aunt who was a witch. You know, like there's this whole sort of like, re- you know what Jelly Roll is? Jelly Roll, no. Jelly Roll's pussy. Oh, so wow. Jelly Roll Morton, who's like the first blues man. Pussy Morton. Pussy Morton. Yeah. <laughs> rock and roll, meant to fuck. So, like, rock around the clock tonight, we're gonna fuck all night.
4: Ah, uh, you just educated this. Rock shit my item, baby. Man.
1: Yeah, no, read this essay. It all comes from this essay. He's brilliant, this guy. Michael Ventura. It's in a collection called Shadow Dancing in the USA, which is out of print. But
4: I wonder I like rock and roll so much, man. That's... I'm telling you, <laughs> like like
1: the roots jazz comes from the same West African root word for jizz, which means to ejaculate, right? In the West African language. Wow. Uh, funk is mafunke, which means positive sweat. So it's sweat you get from dancing or fucking, but not from working. Wow, you know, uh, yeah, there are all these. I, I care. There, there are a bunch of them. Um, what am I talking about there? Why did I get into that? The sex. Well, the we we're just voodoo. talking about the cultural phenomena. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, he makes way. this point, this amazing point in that essay where he says, until the like the twenties when. The black jazz bands, some of them were actually Jewish in blackface, but they were playing jazz, which was this very black form of free music mm-hmm. that people were dancing to, white people were dancing to. That was the first time in history that white people had danced without choreography. Did not know that. Is that a fucking mind fuck? Yeah. All white people dancing previous to that, according to these ethnomusicologists that he he interviewed, had danced you know the waltz or the this the two step or this or whatever. Like there were always instructions, right? And the first time white people ever just moved in response to music was from the black music entering into white culture.
4: That's so cool. You know, I've heard so much about um, you know part of it was uh, Sula Bennett's. uh, Poland and Peasant, uh, man, I, I forget exactly what the, the title was. Um, there's several other books that kind of look back into even where dance comes from, because dance was part of that Sula Bennett title. Um, but a lot of their dances, the the geometry of it, if you were to look from a top-down mm. uh, standpoint, that, you know, and this is what I read, Um Uh, Has to do with astronomical movements or some, you know, it had some kind of root, like, Mm. I I don't know if I would call it an ancestral root, because I really don't know how deeply it went into their ancestry, but I'm pretty sure it did. Uh, And that's interesting that that's like, um, you know, the first time at least that we know of, of them breaking free of that ancestral geometry that they would dance in. And just kind of let the music, right. you know, like just improv. Just let the music do what it yeah. does and let your body
1: express itself freely in the moment. And then there's the theory that African music is so complex because there weren't a lot of psychedelic plants in Africa. And so they developed these complex rhythms to alter consciousness. Whereas in the Americas with so many types of mushrooms and ayahuasca and peyote and, uh, you know, San Pedro and all this mm-hmm. other stuff it wasn't necessary they would take the plants enter the trance state and then the music was just sort of a simple anchor for them mm-hmm. set and I, I setting know. yeah i don't know if that's mckenna's theory or who came up with that one uh,
4: yeah yeah i mean like so doing psychedelica i had to look into some of the the cave systems that they would do ritual in mm. and you know there's one um chavin de juantar down in peru uh, where they would do huachuma and uh it it was constructed in such such a way that when they would play music um it would bounce in bounce off of it in such a way that it would it would sound like it's coming at you at different times and different angles and that in and of itself as your mind tries to make sense of patterns of sound and stuff like that it it start apparently would send them into kind of like an altered state just mm. from hearing the music and then you add on top of that that right. they're on Huachuma at the time
1: which is San Pedro San right? Pedro yeah, yeah that's yeah.
4: that's what they called it mm. um San Pedro Saint Peter the one with the keys to heaven so that mm. was that was what the you know the the spanish started calling it um but yeah the same thing uh, I'm forgetting where somewhere in Greece maybe a uh, different cave system. You mentioned the Eleusinian Mysteries in Greece. Mm. It lasted 2,000 years. Yeah. You know, and that was for the arts, and they would dance, and they would, you know, also sports and stuff like that, but they
1: would take this Kaikion beverage and you know, 2,000 years. You know, Stanley has a really interesting theory that, that I, I think needs, deserves a lot more uh, awareness around the world. His, and this relates to what, we're talking about with placebo and also what we're talking about now he points out this is stanley krippner he points out that in shamanic societies the placebo response uh, would have been accentuated not ignored as it is in our society as a troublesome interference because it would have been exactly what shamans are trying to tap into because it's so strong and, and in the absence of other technologies, that's one of the things you'd be leveraging. Right. And so people with high hypnotic ability would have had a distinct evolutionary advantage. Mm-hmm. And it's only in the modern world where high hypnotic ability, which appears to be genetic. I don't know if you've studied hypnosis. No, and, I haven't actually. Um, People's susceptibility to uh, hypnotic suggestion is seems to be very much a genetic trait. Wow. And some people have it, some people don't, which is why when you see a stage hypnotist perform, they always do a screening um, event with the audience first. And they notice who responds most. And then later when they pick people to come up on stage... They pick those people that they've already noticed have high hypnotic ability. Hmm. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, Anyway, Stanley's point is that in shamanic hunter-gatherer societies like the ones that we evolved in, people with high hypnotic ability would have had this distinct survival advantage. And so it would have been selected for. And so the people would have entered into altered states much more readily and much more deeply. So if you and I go to one of these cave complexes and we listen to the sacred flutes playing and and we hear this, you know, this this music that's slightly off or whatever mm-hmm. and and it might trigger an effect in us, but it's likely to have been far stronger for the people who were there because they would have been selected for. They would have had much higher hypnotic ability than we do.
4: That's wild. You know, it brings me back to Michael Winkleman, uh, anthropologist, uh, speaking about psychoneuroimmunology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's quite a few I've, people speaking
1: about I that I know now. Michael Winkleman and actually spoke with him at a psychoneuroimmunology conference. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if it's the same Winkleman, yeah. Yeah. He's a, he was a student of Stanley's. Okay, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So he
4: lives down in Brazil now. I had him on uh, psychedelica. That's funny. He was the first person I heard that from, but he was saying like this is if you think what the you know, the psychedelics are really doing is allowing you to be more suggestible. That's yeah. the power of set and setting. Right. So if you have the container really well placed then and the community is all in the same they're they're looking for the same thing they want group healing they want group you know a bond yeah um as all tribes would there's you know you know that's advantageous for evolution as well so um but yeah this in psychoneuroimmunology the The ability for suggestibility um, under these altered states would allow for deeper connections between the members and also um, a belief kind of uh what's the guy who laughed himself to health? What was his
1: name oh oh yeah. Uh... Yeah, the laughing cure. Yeah, I'll I'll think of it. But it was like a '70s cult hit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He
4: had some kind of degenerative disc disorder or something like that, left him in crippling pain, and he decided he was going to laugh himself back to health. He chose that as a mechanism, and in a sense, you could say the placebo effect worked with it. But like, let's say somebody told him to do it, and he didn't really buy it. Would it have worked? Mm. you know if he didn't buy it if he did just didn't believe it like no nah, that's yeah. not scientific that's just a right. bunch of woo-woo but i'll watch your three stooges tape and nothing happens you know i yeah. i fully believe he had to believe that in the same way that these groups
1: you strengthen the belief because everybody in the group believes very similar things yeah which leads into complicated shit in terms of modern medicine uh, my wife's a psychiatrist and we talk about this stuff a lot and and it's like you know, she at one point we were talking about. Um, she wanted to, to to work with people who don't have any money, and I said, "Well, then just don't charge." You know, that's you know why not? And she's like, "Yeah, if you don't charge, it doesn't work. People don't take it seriously. In fact, the more you charge, the more it works. It's not about the money; it's about provoking that placebo response." And um, doctors, you know, who have... Who never will listen to your fucking lungs walk around with a stethoscope around their neck because it symbolizes healer. Yeah. You know? And so a lot of modern medicine with the outfits and the call me doctor so-and-so and and the blah, 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 Mm -hmm. it's almost counterproductive to be casual with your patients because then you lose that placebo leverage. It does make sense. Money... it means something to
4: us. It's symbolic to all of us. And, you know, it may vary from person to person a little bit, but in the long run, I, I don't know too many people, unless you have an abundance of it, that are just looking to get rid of their money because they're like, what is this useless shit in yeah. my pocket? Except you know? for when
1: they go to a casino.
4: Right, yeah. But that's that's fed by so many other yeah, beliefs of yeah. what they need. And, yeah. So I totally agree. Yeah. You don't charge for something and people don't value it as much because yeah. they didn't need they didn't to. What have sacrifice. What have I lost? Nothing. I didn't yeah. pay anything. So yeah. I'll download this album and I may listen to it or not. But yeah. if, if I pay something for it, right. then, then I gave something of myself. Right. And so I'm now seeking for what the value is in return. Yeah. I need to really listen to seek what it is. Get my
1: money's worth.
4: I could totally see that yeah. in medicine. I, I actually never even thought of it that way uh, as far as like, you know yeah well what if you just you know don't charge people it it wouldn't work yeah it's true because they don't put up they're not meeting you halfway with some kind of i'm coming to you with this so you can come to me with your expertise and help me
1: right we actually worked out a pretty cool system where because she really wanted to work with people who didn't have money and so what we did was came up with a system where they would volunteer Uh, several hours of their time at a homeless shelter or SPCA or whatever. And that's how they would pay service. I love it. So they don't have to, it doesn't have to be that you pay me. You just have to pay, pay it for something. Exactly. And, and the other cool thing about that is that if you have someone whose essential fear that they're trying to deal with is around death, Mm -hmm. send them to a hospice to, you know, to volunteer there. You know, you can the the volunteer work can help with the healing. Yeah. You know? It's yeah, it's a pretty cool system. For sure. Hey, before we, we run out of time, because I have to go pick up Wim Hoff. As, yeah. Name dropping. Name nice. dropping. Love Wim. Taking Wim to the airport. Tell um, him
4: I still want to start that band with him.
1: All right. <laughs> Do you come up with a name for it? The uh, Iceman.
4: Oh man. Um <laughs> the icebreaker. I, I wish I could come up with something witty here. It's like <laughs> yeah i
1: can't (laughs) uh what was i gonna say oh i wanted to talk to you about conspiracies Uh, because i conspiracies are there's something that you know like rogan has this friend who seriously believes the earth is flat you know uh eddie what's his eddie bravo bravo believes that yeah
4: okay i know it i know who eddie bravo is i didn't know that he uh He uh, jumped onto that bandwagon. Yeah, he's
1: like super into. And to be honest, I've never met Eddie, but Joe talks about how Eddie believes this, and he loves Eddie and respects him. But like, I don't. How can you believe these things that are? Um, that one to me is beyond the pale. But I certainly am. There, there are things that are considered conspiracies that I look at and say that makes more sense to me than the story i've been told. Yeah. Um so it's it's an int- the whole idea of conspiracy theories is interesting because i feel like it's um a technique used by the dominant power structure to discredit any kind of legitimate questioning of the dominant narrative. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that nine eleven, the story behind nine eleven that we've been told doesn't add up, you're like Eddie Bravo who thinks the earth is flat. Right. And so I find it very frustrating because I know enough history to know that conspiracies are everywhere. Right. Misinformation, disinformation campaigns, black flag operations are everywhere going back to, you know probably the fucking, you know, the, the, the Mongol hordes, um, but certainly, you know, the sinking of the Lusitania and the Spanish-American War, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, probably Pearl Harbor. Back to Rome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like this is some new shit that they're just coming up with. Right. You know, you learn this at West Point in your first fucking class, probably. <laughs> so there's no doubt that there are conspiracies, but then... There are conspiracies that, like you mentioned David Ick earlier, mm. I haven't read any of his books, I haven't listened to any of his stuff, but I know that he believes that there are lizard beings that are ruling the world, which immediately seems laughably ridiculous to me. Mm-hmm. Is there some truth there? Is, there is, is he? Is there something to him that I don't know that should be taken seriously, or is he... Uh, a huckster, like wh- where does this, where are you in that world? Well,
4: see, see, here's what I love about it. Um, I would say that, like, I went through my phase of conspiracy. I look at conspiracy in my personal journey as an alarm clock. Mm. Uh, it woke me up, but you know, how long do you need the alarm to keep ringing before you start moving forward with your day? You yeah. know, it woke you up. Now what? Uh, I saw it as being a trap for a lot of people who like. David Icke's been around a while, back into the 90s, same with Alex Jones, and they are, you know, like, I feel it, it has to, after a while, if you have a, a radio show, or you're writing books, and you're talking about this thing, it becomes a shtick, it becomes a way to make your money, people know who you are, and I I support it in this respect, because um, David Icke, when he goes into, now it's like, because it's changed uh, in his opinion, like shape-shifting reptilians because of all these accounts of people being, you know, uh women being raped and um like, you know, from early age and to traumatize them and to, you know, to sink information into their brain as sleeper cells. And, you know, he's gotten into that, you know, but then he started saying, well, now I believe they're like um, other dimensional beings, you know, they can slip in and out of dimensions. And, you know, to me, here's where I, even, even with the flat earth thing, like I, I like, I've had some debates with some people who, uh, really, really, uh, good friends of mine that are also extremely intelligent. And in a way I kind of feel like, you know what? this is my eloquence battling your eloquence. That's all this is. We're not, I don't feel like we're getting to the root of an actual solution or figuring out what's what the world actually looks like. So a lot of the times, I just opt out of the debate because it's, it's mainly based upon the attitude of the person that I'm talking with at the mm. time. I'll... I'll listen to anybody. You can tell me that you believe ant people are going to come up, you know, from underground and take over the world, and I'd be like, "Cool, yeah." The Hopi talked about shit like that. Yeah, let me let me know more. Doesn't mean I'm going to go home and start doomsday prepping more than I already do,
1: you know? Like so. (laughs) Yeah, our problem isn't coming from underground, unless you look at oil, I guess. Yeah, I
4: mean, it's to me, it it really just depends. I I always have this. I don't really understand the full context of what's happening on this planet. And I'm seeking, I'm really looking certain things like the flat earth thing. It, it throws me off because it really feels like, you know what? The most people that I know that are trying to argue the flat earth, they're too, they have too much fervor. They're too like overly zealous about it. And to me, I'm like, you know, maybe it's not your time yet. You know, maybe it's just not your time yet. Maybe people aren't ready. Like maybe you're not reading the zeitgeist enough uh if it really is flat get some get some fucking hard evidence and some footage like, first and then
1: Galileo was in on it I well mean, all how, the way that,
4: to the jesuits you know yeah. they're like it's a jesuit thing and i'm like yeah you know but what about like and everything i bring up it's just like yeah but who made that telescope i'm like really it doesn't matter the, this that's, is that's this the is, is the argument of, th- yeah th- you know and like the same person and this this isn't to discredit anything really cuz i don't even care but like this isn't to discredit the flat Earth thing, but like the the one very brilliant guy that was telling me about this was like, and the moon, look at that, it's a hologram." I was like, "Okay, explain." And he says, "You see, because it was it wasn't completely dark; it was the sky was still kind of blue, and you could see the moon." He was like, "You you can see blue in front of the moon. It's a hologram, dude. It's like you're seeing right through it." And I'm like, "You're looking through the atmosphere." To a moon that's sitting outside of our atmosphere. That's where the blue is coming from. And he didn't have an explanation for it. He just moved on to the next thing. I'm just like, how many times do you use that tactic? And really, like, let's say you were to convince me one more flat earther, (laughs) you know, one more flat earther. What are we working towards?
1: We're working towards a religious fundamentalism in which you're with us and not against us. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, what I see in the in the conspiracy stuff is it satisfies a hunger, mm-hmm. a pre existing hunger, and so the factual basis of it is totally irrelevant. Yeah, as you were saying, right, and that's why it's not worth it to talk. It's like talking to someone who like really, really believes in Jesus and Jesus died for your sins and Mary was his mother and you know, like all yeah. that that story there 's no point in talking about it because it 's not about the story it 's about the feelings that they have that are associated to the story, mm-hmm. but they don 't realize that, so they locate it all in the story. you know it 's like you know oh, you know black people are causing all the problems you know well that 's because of your feeling of inadequacy and you 're feeling like you get dumped on all the time, you redneck, and so you have to hate someone else, and, yeah. you know you can 't explain all that to someone they 're not going to hear it. Yeah, to me, like,
4: this is this is what got me out of conspiracy very promptly. I love it, and honestly, I believe that there's far more going on that we we as uh, people would disagree with from the top 1% than we'll ever know, than mm. we'll ever know. But the thing is, is what is our conversation going to do about that? And, like, you know, even getting back into the, you know, like, Jesus
1: died for your sins, like... Oh gonna slam Oh well, no uh, it isn't it's a
4: gentle wind it's
1: a gentle wind i thought the door was gonna slam folks <laughs> so what
4: uh maybe i'm angering the gods right now i don't know <laughs> by saying this but like the the feeling I have is like when I'm talking to most people, my now where I come from is I know people who haven't studied any of this stuff, but they're down at a shelter feeding people who right. are hungry. They're mm-hmm. building homes for people. They're doing something. They're giving clothes. They're they're serving people. They're playing music for old folks at an old folks' home because we in society don't know what to do with old folks anymore. You know, like yeah. that to me is service. So like, what is you explaining, knocking on my door and explaining to me the. You you know, the the second coming and where my place is and all of that. You see that guy over on the road who's, who's starving and has been starving for quite some time and hasn't had a home, hasn't had somebody to talk to? Why don't you go talk to him? Feed him a meal. I'll have so much more respect for you for that. Not converting me, you know, like another notch on your belt saying, I got another one, yeah. you know, like what? I, I just don't get it. And sometimes, you know, I'm wrong. So, Tell me how I'm wrong. Tell me how what you're doing in this story and how you're trying to convert me into flat earth or your, you know, your religion or whatever it might be. It may be a noble cause. You may be a very good person, but how is this going to actually serve I don't get it because for me, I'm here to serve. I do it through music. I do it through you know film. I try and you know always have some kind of greater mission in mind. How is this film going to help the indigenous? How is this music going to help these these people? Something. It doesn't have to be like over you know above and beyond, but a lot. That's what kind of got me out of conspiracy. Is what is our conversation and how heated it's getting really going to do for the. For, you know, for what's going on in the world right now. I yeah. almost completely checked out of politics because there's a difference between actually doing something in politics and, and making some kind of a stand and making some kind of a change. And then there's the soap opera. Mm. And the soap opera is all that I hear. Yeah. So I can't even really feel like I'm connected to or touching the actual, what's the politics of things? This is actually making a change in our country. But the soap opera... I feel is just the Facebook or the YouTube thread where yeah. everyone gets to get out all their inner demons in the le- the least eloquent or grammatically correct way, and the least subversive. Mm.
1: You're just tweeting, so you're right. not marching, right? You know, you're not doing anything. You're just shouting into this protected space that they've set up to absorb your energy. A very good way to say it. Yeah. Very good way to say yeah, it. Fuck, man. Uh, <laughs> where can people learn more about you?
4: Oh man, so um. You know you can YouTube uh, my name or my films. At first, I just started like um, putting all my films out online for free. Um, so Ben Stewart, um, Ben Joseph Stewart on Facebook. Uh, you'll see me singing into a microphone. Uh, I'm getting my website benjosephstewart.com up here soon. Um, but I would say, you know, if anyone here has anything to say to me, whether you want to like feed me with information that I got wrong or whatever, idols at gmail.com. So that's T-A-L-I-S-M-A-N-I-C-I-D-O-L-S at gmail.com. If you want to ask me what talismanic idols means, I might tell you that as well. So, it's just, <laughs> or he might not. Or it might Depends not. how you ask. Or I might uh, create a diversion and you know start a brand new conspiracy no one's heard before. There you go. Yeah, we'll see.
1: There you go. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah. Thank you this so much, much for fun. having me. Here. I hope we do it again. Let's do it. All right. For sure. Okay, mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage.
2: Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t-shirts sex at dawn civilized to death vanthropology tangentially speaking paleo modern and talking out of my ass
1: (laughs) she didn't like saying that last one
2: then we now have some new things added we've got beer cozies or koozies, or whatever they're called.
1: Oh, civilized to death! Design. They're all civilized. That's right. To death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom.
3: He said, "Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day." Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation